Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on Climate Change in the Multiverse. We have an incredible guest. I am so excited. Dr. Devyani Singh, who is running for the BC Greens in Vancouver Point Grey. I am so blown away by your your talent and your vision and what you hold. Um, Deviani has an MBA in finance, a master's of um, a master's in environmental science, a PhD in energy and climate policy from the Faculty of Forestry at UBC, and she's doing a postdoctoral fellowship in oil and gas studies of what's going on in Canada. You are the perfect person to be in politics. You, I'm just, I'm just completely blown away. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing what you do. Thanks, Kelly. I'm excited to be here as well. So it, I feel like it almost goes without saying why you're going into politics, but why don't you tell us <laughs> anyway? Well, um, so I'll go back into like what got me really concerned is I grew up in India, in the Indian Himalayas. And, uh, you know, those are some really pristine ecosystems that have been feeling the impact of climate change since the 80s and 90s. And when I was young in the 80s and 90s, um, I could see this. I could see that my forests were burning. The glaciers were receding where I used to hike to. And there used to be these beautiful neon birds uh, that used to come to the chestnut tree in front of my house. Um, I haven't seen them since I was 10 years old. They've been going extinct and all the other wildlife species were going extinct. And I really wanted to do something about it. Um, but it is not until now, you know, when I became a climate scientist that I actually got the education and the skills and expertise to work on this. And so for the last many years, when I've been working on energy and climate policy issues uh, globally and in Canada, I have been writing, you know, uh, letters and trying to get um, make calls to politicians to listen to scientists because the science is clear when it comes to anthropogenic climate change that we need to act sooner than later. And it's fallen on deaf ears. And politicians have been ignoring science, as we see. And it's not just Canadian politicians, it's globally. And uh, I just couldn't sit back anymore, uh, given the fact that the next four years are going to be critical when it comes to taking climate action, critical if we want to meet Paris targets, critical if we want to leave a livable planet for future generations. And given that, both our, you know, uh, the liberal government before us and the NDP government in the last few years, they made promises, but they never acted on them. They make all these targets that we don't achieve. And when it comes to climate action, such as, you know, things such as Site C, LNG, uh, old growth forests, uh, there's been, they've ignored it. And so I just could not sit back anymore. And as a concerned citizen, as a scientist who is totally appalled by what's happening and how we are being ignored, I decided to run because the next four years are very, very, very important when it comes to climate change and the policies that get put into place. Mm. Thank you. Absolutely. What? I'm I'm always left with the question: Why? Why is this happening? And I know maybe we don't have the answer to that, but I'm curious to your mind: Why is it that government has not been able to make the change that's necessary? I think there's uh, a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, there's obviously, uh, they think it's not practical. They're looking at the water base that might not be as concerned. But I also think it is the way our political system is formed and the way it works, right? It, they, every, these four-year cycles, the most important thing that the politician thinks of is getting reelected. 
And if not, then let the next politician deal with the problems. It was fine. It worked for the last like 100 years or so. But with climate change, we can't wait for the next and the next and the next election cycle. If we don't make a difference in this election cycle, four years from now, in 2024, LNG Canada comes online and becomes the single largest source of carbon emissions in Canada, not just BC, in Canada. Let's say at that point, you put in, you elect a green then, and you don't elect, let's say, a green who can make a difference now. That green's hands are tied once it's already online, because now we're talking standard assets, billions that we've already given to them and subsidies and, you know, infrastructure. So which is why we cannot run on these four-year election cycles just to be elected. We need politicians with a conscience. Sounds like an oxymoron, but that's what we need. We need honest politicians. We need politicians with a conscience, politicians who don't care whether or not they'll get reelected, but who are willing to make the decisions and take the action that is critical for the survival of this planet and for of future generations. And I think that's why we haven't had people act until now. And which is why I'm running, because I know the changes we should make. And if I don't know, I know how to find the experts who will tell me the changes that are to be made. And I will take those necessary steps to ensure that children in school today, those graduating high school, they have a planet at least as good as the one we inherited, if not better. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so let's talk economics then, because I feel like the the biggest defense for government taking these actions is jobs. And we need the money and we need to keep our economy up and we can't afford da 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 da. And so then they move forward with sightseeing, they move forward with LNG, even though they don't make rational sense. They're 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 balancing in their minds with the story of how money works. So tell us what's wrong with that. I think that is just to please uh, voting populations because we aren't saying shut fossil fuel and ignore everybody employed in that industry. We talk of something called just transitions. What that means is an equitable transition, a fair transition, where there are many steps. There have been successful transitions in um, the Spanish coal industry. You know, in fact, the Alberta government uh, put in place a transition for the coal workers there. And we can learn from these situations. We can learn what worked well and what didn't work well, and we can adjust that. We we won't be the first place to put in a just transition, but we can be the first one to do it at a scale that we can be world leaders that people can look to. So what does that mean? It means guaranteeing uh, green jobs to people employed in the uh, you know extractive and high carbon, uh, in, uh, in carbon intensive industries. So some of this would require uh, retraining. And so, you know, you set up funds where people can go to college, they can learn new trades and uh, those things. The second is, um, not everybody will be able to learn new skills. You know, there might be people who are in their 50s. There might be people closer to 50 who are, you know, even older and saying it's not worth their time to spend another year or two learning new skills. So in that case, we need funds to set up early retirements, but not at a level that they can't support themselves. Right. The retirement has to compensate them for the fact that they will not be working for the next 10 years at the salary that they were planning to. Then the other thing is a lot of these fossil fuel workers get 100,000 or more in, in their paychecks. So what we and it's highly likely that 
just to begin with, the green energy jobs might not be able to hit that. So we need wage insurance, which kind of, if I was working at 120 and now you tell me to take a $100,000 job, I might say no. But if you say, I will retrain you, this is a guaranteed and sustainable job for the next 20 years for you. And we will make sure you get the 120, either be through the job and through your employer, or we have that wage insurance that, you know, uh, fills the gap. Right. Um, so those are like some of the th things when it comes to the jobs transition. Secondly, if you're actually looking at the number of jobs, if we start building uh, transit, like, you know, um, train infrastructure in BC, we revive our forestry industry that's based on second uh, growth forests and sustainable forestry and value added products. That's a lot of job creation. Uh, creating new uh, green energies and technologies, that's another lot of job creation. However, if we look at actually um, the LNG Canada plan that's been, we talk about a lot, the permanent jobs created out of that would be only around 500. Yes, for the next three to four years, we'll have a few like, you know, about eight to 10,000 temporary jobs that get created, but they aren't permanent jobs. What happens to them uh, what, in 2024? No one's talking of a transition for those workers, but if you transition them to the clean energy, they have a job that's long-term. The other thing is a lot of these transitionary jobs are, is not British Columbian labor. A lot of this labor comes from outside, right? It can come from Alberta or you look in Alberta, there's a lot of like people who come from the East Coast to work in the oil and gas industry. So when we are talking of like, you know, creating jobs for people in BC, we want permanent jobs for people in BC. We want to create good jobs and we want to create safe jobs. There's a lot of health uh, impacts that come from working in the fossil fuel industry. So that's the job side. Now we're talking economics. Let's talk pure economics. What's happening south of the border? Those hurricanes that are happening, right? Uh, the wildfires, it's costing trillions and trillions and, and, and in terms of finances. It's actually cheaper for us to take action now because we are a little north. So the northern countries feel the impacts a little later than those who are more on the equatorial. So, but we still have a wildfire season every year in BC that impacts a lot of us and damages property and it, even high value timber, if you think about it that way, let alone even the, the ecosystems and the animals and all the other life that's lost, right? So it's actually beneficial for us to start taking action now when you talk about economics, then to leave it for future when we really in the depth of the impacts, the catastrophic impacts of climate change and how much it will cost us then. And the third is, we have seen whenever you tie yourself and the economy to one industry, there is a collapse. You know, we had the forestry and the logging industry collapse, which, you know, look at Alberta, they tied everything to oil and gas. And now then the prices have fallen so low. I don't, I love BC and I love this place. I don't want it to see it, all our economy and a lot of our economy tied to fossil fuel extraction. So when we diversify our economy, even if one sector takes the brunt of the impact, our economy is resilient. And those other sectors can then, um, you know, just uh, absorb the workers from those other, uh, the industry that was impacted due to unforeseen changes. And the last I want to say is, this is the only, in the past, we've had forestry industry collapses, or in the US, there was a the textile industry collapses, because we didn't see it coming. We know the end of oil and gas is coming. Now, is it in five years? Is it in 10? Is it in 20? It doesn't matter. It's coming. And whether we like it or not, whether we 
make plans for it or not, it will be imposed upon us by the global community. And so if we want a resilient economy, we want us to continue uh, succeeding and you know growing as an economy, as a people, as a province, we need to think long-term. We need to put those measures in place that 10 years from now, when the world starts you know, uh, getting mad at everybody who's still producing oil and gas, we're ahead. BC can be a world leader, a role model. We pride ourselves as being the climate and environmentally conscious province, but we're not acting on it. We can be that province and we should be that province. And I think we can. And economically, basically climate change, acting on climate change is economically beneficial. That is what people don't understand. And it's beneficial for long-term jobs. But it often gets lost in communication because the fossil fuel industry, as we have known, has known about climate change, has spent billions around the world to cover it up and to make it sound uncertain, talk about, oh, if you get rid of this, you won't have jobs and economy. But that is just a narrative that is that they like and they spread it. But that is not the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- I struggle with this so much hearing this and it just it, it makes no sense to me. That, that people are just so invested in money and power that they're willing to destroy the whole planet. It's beyond. So, uh, what, so what does the next 10 years, 20 years look like, regardless of the changes we make? I mean, maybe not regardless, because there, there, we can be halting things, we can be mitigating, and we can be reversing. Can you kind of talk us through what we're looking like in, in 10 to 20 years, if things stay the same, if we enact certain um, measures, and then if we go completely halting and then regenerative? So... The science, as I mentioned, is quite clear. If we, And that's why we had the Paris Agreement to try to keep temperatures between 1.5 and 2 degrees. Uh, because is that ideal? No. We're still going to you know, feel, we're still going to have wildfire seasons. We're still going to have a tiny bit of sea level rise. We're still going to have, uh, you know, increased precipitation events, changing precipitation events. And um, even at 1.5 to 2 degrees, and, you know, we are going through the largest uh, ecological extinction, um, you know, on the planet. Um, and so I think business as usual right now, I think um, every different uh, every country is a bit different, but I don't remember the exact report that said this, but I remember reading it a few months ago where it said Canada's trajectory on a business as usual is leading us to a six to eight degree planet. Yeah. So our emissions are small compared globally, but if we are looking at our impact and if we were to just think Canada was the world, we're heading to that path as business as usual. Okay, so we need to, if we really want to hit net zero or carbon neutral uh, by mid-century, be it 2045, as the Greens want, or 2050, as NDP says, but it has no plan how to get there, um, <laughs> you know, we need, we need to be carbon neutral. We need to do it sooner than later. For that, there is no one policy. We need to be doing a lot of things, right? One is we shouldn't be giving a carbon tax rebate to the uh, fracking industry, right? Um, I don't know if you let, read the details, but basically once the carbon tax is over $30 a ton, the fracking industry now gets a rebate while the rest of us continue paying 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, but they you get a rebate, right? Um, I think we need to increase carbon taxes to the level it should reach there. Uh, the other thing we need to do is electrify everything, okay? Electrify transit, electrify uh, public transit, 
commercial transit, industrial transit, government transit, individual transit. Once we electrify everything, now it's on one system. Now we decarbonize our electric grid. Now in BC, luckily, we get most of our energy from hydro, but we still have about three to 5% that comes from fossil fuels. So we need to concentrate on moving those away from fossil fuels to renewable sources. And there was a concern, there is a consortium of First Nations who are investing into renewable energy. And uh, I think we should support these local BC initiatives, local indigenous initiatives to uh, get, uh, to generate electricity from clean sources and to add it to the grid. Now, you might think that Site C, oh, great, it is tidal, it'll add. Actually, Site C is not being built to add to the grid for us. It is actually being built so it can provide subsidized electricity to the fracking industry. That is where their energy will be going. And it is being subsidized by us as taxpayers who will be paying higher rates for every uh, megawatt hour of energy so that Ellen, so that fracking can get subsidized energy. So that's another thing that taxpayers will be paying. So we need to move that away. We need to move away from fossil fuel. We need to electrify everything. We need to uh, go get in when it comes to agriculture. We need to go into regenerative uh, agriculture. Um, you know, the just transition uh, that I mentioned, we need to look into value added products. And actually, um, because I was at the Faculty of Forestry, there's a whole wood science department in there. And there's these amazing, like, you know, they have like glue lamb and all these like other kinds of uh uh, what they call composite wood products that are great for building houses. And we have the Brock uh, Commons. That was the tallest, first tallest building, about 14 stories uh, in the world. Uh, and I think making wood buildings is great, right? Uh, we can use our second growth forest. We can value added products within BC, increase the jobs, revive that industry. And then by building these buildings with wood, what happens is now you're locking in that carbon that was came from sustainable sources, which is like I grew that plant, that tree to cut it, not taking an old growth because we need to protect our old growth systems. And now you've put it into a structure for the next hundred years or so. So in a way, you've pulled carbon out of the air and made that building. So there's a lot of initiatives we need to take. These are just a few. And we've reached a point on our planet where we need to do all of this all at once. We can't pick and choose. We also need to look into direct air capture. You know, we have that facility up in Squamish. We need to look into carbon capture and storage. It's really expensive. But you know what? I don't think that's if the, if us and the rest of the world don't get our act together, we're not just looking at net zero, we're looking at net negative. And then we need to start looking at carbon sequestration uh, and, you know, not just through uh, planting more trees and uh, managing uh, forests well, but also carbon capture and storage, which is very expensive right now. And I know a lot of politicians are like, oh, we'll continue extracting and then we'll just do CCS and put it in the ground. But that really doesn't help because CCS is not at the at the uh, scale that we want it to be. And it's extremely, extremely costly compared to all the other things we can do that are cheaper. Yeah. And it, it, it can be an excuse just to keep consuming at the same level. Exactly. Just like carbon credits are being used for that. Oh, we'll just offset, you know, our emissions, uh, really. And then we have the wildfire events in California. And like half your forestry credits are burned. What happened to those credits that you offset? Now it's all in the air and you just pumped more. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and that's something that people don't really have a, um, a wherewithal for is the positive feedback loops that are triggered by the events. 
and how things are are getting worse faster and faster. So we do have to do things like sequester carbon when really that's more of a band-aid solution. It's not a preventative solution. It's it's mm-hmm. some it's a treatment. And we but it's too late now for just preventative measures. We need to be implementing all the preventative measures, all of the treatments and exactly. all the creativity and innovation we can muster at the same time. Exactly. And you know what? We have that creativity in BC. We have UBC, we have UWIC, we have all these amazing uh, universities that if we can provide them the funding for conducting research, you think we don't have those brilliant minds in those universities who can't find us amazing, um, you know, technologies and ways to uh, achieve what we want? We have the brains, we have the capacity, we have the experts. We just need to let them see the light of day. Absolutely. Oh, so tell me, how do you stay calm? How do you stay calm knowing all that you know and, and watching all of this unfold? How do you do it? Well, um, probably once a week, I do have an existential crisis. Um, and I feel I'm, I feel like giving up and I'm fighting a losing battle and nothing's ever going to change. And then I remind myself that if that's how I think, then nothing will change, right? Okay, maybe until I, I wish we'd taken this action Five years ago, and we would have had stopped climate change at 1.5 degrees. If I act today, I can maybe stop it at two. If I act in four years from now, I can stop it at three. Yes. Is three good? No. It's worse than 1.5 and two, but it's better than if we do nothing and it hits six, right? So that's what keeps me going and fighting every day is keep fighting because the day we start taking action, it'll be that much less catastrophic. And I say less catastrophic because we're still going to hit catastrophic. We're already seeing that. You think what's happening in the U.S. right now is not catastrophic. We got lucky this year. Uh, We didn't have our crazy wildfire season, but we hit it every year in B.C. You know, we're going to be having a lot of these um, impacts and we're going to be feeling them soon. Bangladesh is drowning. India is feeling droughts and floods at the same time. Island nations are sinking. It's happening. And what we the decisions we make here impact them. Right. We just might not be seeing it right away, but we need to do this. And if we owe it not just to ourselves, but to all the people, the marginalized, the poor, who are feeling the impacts of this the most, and they are the ones who pay the most. We owe it to the world, we owe it to the planet, and we owe it to future generations. And which is why I keep fighting. Because if a person with the knowledge and our training, like me and other climate scientists, if we give up, then there really is no hope which is why I'm running, because I gave up as science, as just a scientist that I wasn't being listened to. I figured it's time for me to get elected now and take this argument and all this passion into the legislature and make the right policies happen in the next four years. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here and thank you for sharing that and and for stepping into service. Um, I know how frustrating it can (laughs) be. Um, just as a person, I can't imagine with all of your your education and, and dedication to these fields to not be listened to. It, it boggles the mind. But here you are now. And we're listening and we're ready for change. <laughs> Can you tell the people how to find you online on Twitter, Instagram, your website? Yeah, um, you can check out my website at devyanisingh.com, which is D-E-V-Y-A-N-I. S-I-N-G-H dot com. You can, there's, uh, you can um, email me through that. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, um, it's 
Kumari, K-U-M-A-R-I, underscore Devyani, D-E-V-Y-A-N-I. Um, and on Facebook, I have a page that says Devyani for MLA. Uh, you can find me there. Um, but if you go to my website, uh, there's links to all of these. And please feel free to, you know, email me, tweet, tweet mail, you know, direct whatever. I don't know the young people tech, uh, terminology. Just message me. Yes, direct message me or give me a call if you want to know more. That's what I'm here for. Not just as a representative, uh, but also as a climate scientist who cares about communicating the problems of what we are facing. And definitely as your representative, I want to hear from you and how I can best serve you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Kelly.